Good evening to you all. Tonight I'd like to talk about what are called the five spiritual faculties and describe for you what they are individually and then talk about the interplay of them in the practice that we've been doing for the last few days. How many of you are familiar with the teaching on the five spiritual faculties? <clears throat> yeah, a few, not so many. Maybe, oh, yeah, I know you are, Louise. Uh, f- maybe 10 of you. So the Buddha was a great list maker. His, uh, his whole method is uh, very analytical, and so he has these lists of different factors of mind and different causes and conditions and how they relate to each other. So if he ever did a Venn diagram, it would be like this incredible series of arrows and goes here and this is related to that and all the rest of it. Uh, But these five spiritual faculties are part of the list of what the Buddha called the requisites of enlightenment, meaning the necessary things that need to be present in the mind for a being to awaken. And these are sometimes called the five jewels, the five controlling faculties. Um, And when they're really well developed, they're actually called the five powers, the five powers of mind. So these five faculties are something that's inherent in us. We as human beings have these developed and available to us at some level. But part of the main message is that they can be further and intentionally developed until they become very strong, where they actually become powers of mind that we can draw on at will. So Ajahn Brahm says these are really skillful means to empower practice. They're motivators which lead us to generate insight. So they're a kind of power source for what we're doing when we do spiritual practice. So let me uh, go through and talk about these empowering qualities of mind. I'll give you all five of them first, and then I'll talk about them individually and how they interrelate with each other. So the first of these is what's called, we translate as faith. It's, in Pali it's called sadha. The second is energy or effort called virya. The third is mindfulness uh, known as sati. The fourth is concentration, known as samadhi. And then lastly is wisdom, which is known as panya. So briefly, faith is understood to be confidence, conviction, (coughs) belief. But there's a lot more to it than that in the Buddhist understanding. And because the word faith is so loaded for many of us Westerners, I'd like to spend some time on this particular quality because I think it's really uh, very important because it's, in a certain kind of way, is the power source 
or the jumping off point for spiritual practice. So this word faith in English often automatically registers as faith in uh, something. Maybe it translates for you as a kind of creedal belief. For instance, the Apostles' Creed, you know, I believe in God, and, uh, you know, it continues on like that. And, you know, us Westerners were skeptical. So to hear that, the beginning of the uh, factors that support practice that actually empower it is faith may seem to be quite problematic for those among you who are skeptical beings. So you have to have faith at the beginning. Well, what does that mean? How can you have faith at the beginning? So it's not that you have to have faith at the beginning of practice in that I'm going to sign on the dotted line and become a Buddhist just because. Um, It's not like that. So this uh, actually translates more in the direction of confidence, uh, conviction, those kinds of words, trust. And the trust that's required initially is enough trust, enough confidence in yourself and what you've heard of the teachings to date to actually go ahead and investigate the Buddha's truth claims. So there needs to be that much at the beginning. For some people, there's more than that at the beginning. For some people, there's a kind of, uh, for those who are uh, inclined towards strong faith, there can be like a kind of bright faith right at the beginning where it's like, oh, the Dharma's so wonderful, and the Dalai Lama, he's so amazing, and the Buddhists are so amazing, and, you know, it's all so amazing. Um <laughs> I personally don't have that kind of temperament, so that, (laughs) as you may have guessed. But, so that hasn't been so much of an issue for me. But one thing that did cause um, faith to arise for me initially was uh, two, two things, two things. One was hearing the first noble truth the truth of unsatisfactoriness and hearing that uh, explicated and explained. And I thought, wow, that's where they're starting? (laughs) You mean it's not just me that noticed this? (laughs) Oh, they're like starting there. They're starting right at the beginning with something that I felt intuitively and knew experientially to be so. So that was an early validation for me. And the other validation that, that I received also at the very first formal uh, Dharma contact that I had was the nature of the presence of Stephen and Andrea Levine, who were doing a workshop slash retreat on death and dying and just watching how they worked with the group how they worked with individuals how they how they um, 
related to the suffering, the dukkha in the room, their balance of mind, their complete openness, their kind of translucence uh, and uh, goodwill in their presence, their stability of mind, I thought. I don't know what's going on there, but I like that. I'd, I'd like to figure out how that happens. So there was some kind of initial click. And, you know, for each of us, there, there's probably something early on. You know, if you had the good fortune to be uh, raised in a Buddhist culture or household, maybe there were early teachings or the example of your family or people around you. But something, something brought it along. So classically, the faith is described as faith in the, the Buddha, the, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. But you remember when I gave the refuges, I talked about the classical way of holding each of those and the way that we can hold them as modern uh, people who have an open mind but haven't uh, closed our perspective or our understanding. So the important thing about faith is that it actually empowers us to proceed with the investigation of the Buddhist teachings in a committed kind of way. So if faith is strong, then we're really willing to engage, to actually put ourselves on the line to check it out. It's worth a risk. And this issue of confidence goes to the question of the the teachings that we've heard or that we're investigating. But the confidence also goes to the question about ourselves. Do we feel that we have the capacity to actually investigate? Do we feel safe enough to take the risk of investigating something and investing some time and energy in that investigation and having it turn out to be something different than what we were hoping for. Would that be okay if it was a dry hole or a dead end? Do we have enough confidence to feel like, well, I can take care of myself if it, if it turns out that, you know, this is a washout. So this quality of confidence, self-confidence, is a powerful one. And you can see it, it hooks into motivation. So you remember my practice tip this afternoon was, on, was motivation. Take a look at your intention. What is your motivation? Because the more wholehearted you are in practice, the more energy you bring to it. So some of, there are some particular practices that are sometimes done to actually heighten this quality of urgency and drive and emotional engagement. So I'll give you an example of one of them. The five remembrances. Does anyone here practice the five remembrances? Okay, a few of you do. This is uh, often done uh, by people in uh, Buddhist cultures. So this would be recited every morning 
uh, and the un- understanding is this will have an effect on the choices that you're likely to make every day. The first of these is, I have the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. Second, I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. The third, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. The fourth, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my action, born of my action, related to my action, abide supported by my action. Whatever action I shall do for good or for ill, of that I shall be heir. So a reflection on karma. Now that's a brisk way to start the morning. (laughs) But you can see the effect of that kind of reflection, which is to let you know, hey, uh, it's on fire. (laughs) It's on fire, you better find a way, you better find a, you better wake up. You better use your time wisely. This is the truth. This is reality. See if you can find a way to hold this, to be present with this, to not deny any of it, to live in the light of uh, the first noble truth, the truth of unsatisfactoriness and impermanence in a way that has meaning, that has dignity, that has stability, that is actually onward leading. So it's a power move, a power move, these daily reflections. Don't waste your time. Don't be silly. Don't tarry. Wake up while you've got the time and the energy to practice. You better get, get going. So this faith, it helps to harness the full heartedness in the way we go about practice. It helps to actually generate energy. Which is the second of the five spiritual faculties. So then we go on to energy, which is this quality of strength and courage and persistence. The Buddha talks over and over again in his teachings about the importance of effort, the importance of this quality of mind called virya. And in fact, he talks about that more often than he talks about any of the other things that are part of that list of the requisites of awakening, the requisites of enlightenment. He talks about energy and effort. But you can see how it, how it ties back into faith, right? If you didn't have a strong drive to know, if it wasn't urgent and important to you, then you wouldn't be bringing forward the energy and effort to try to practice. So 
So there's some discernments uh, about energy and effort. You know, the Buddha talks about wise effort in the teachings of the Eightfold Path. And there, of course, it, the, the prefix for the description of everything in the Eightfold Path is Sama, S-A-M-M-A, which means skillful or wise. Sometimes it's translated as right, right effort, wise effort, right? So not all effort is skillful effort. There can be unskillful effort too. Um, A kind of effort that's, for instance, unwholesome. So maybe a kind of effort like to get a preferred state of mind because it, it it's groovy and to keep that going and um, not open to other things that are actually important to open to. There can be skillful effort and unskillful effort. Effort that's appropriate for the task at hand and effort that is just a bad fit for the situation. So in some of the small practice groups today, um, we talked about um, practicing within the range of your current perception. Remember that conversation? Practicing within the range of your current perception. And I said, you know, if, if, the, the, if you're having a hard time uh, finding any sensation at the Anapana spot, then it would be unskillful effort to try to like feel every single in-breath and every single out-breath from the beginning to the end at the Anapana spot because that's not within the current range. So you would, you would want to uh, find a way to attend that's appropriate for what the mind can perceive currently, Right? So it might be just like some brief sensations at the Anapana spot. Or maybe even that it wouldn't be available and maybe the skillful or the wise effort would be to see if you can find some sensations somewhere in the body. So appropriateness, skillfulness of effort is is a dimension of that. Then there's the question about volume or how much you need to have the gas pedal all the way down to the floor when you're making effort. And again, this one depends on circumstances. So there are times if the mind is, is really well settled and it's receiving the object where you can kind of just just be with that, there really isn't anything more that you need to do for the moment at least. You can just be, be there with that, attend to that. If you have another kind of situation where, for instance, the, the mind is, you know, keeps slipping off the object or there's sleepiness, uh, sloth and torpor, you know, you can't stay awake that calls for another kind of effort. 
Sometimes you may become aware that you're using too much of a certain kind of effort because the whole system starts getting tight and constricted and you start burning out and you get get a massive headache and you know your neck starts to ache and you're like this and right too much of a certain kind of effort. So the Buddha one of the classic stories of the Buddha when he was talking about effort was when he had a monk who was a, a musician in a former in his former lay life and he was doing walking practice and he this particular monk was very gung-ho to get results and he was walking barefoot on this path that was rocky and he was cutting his feet all up and getting nowhere with his concentration and mindfulness. And his sister, as sisters sometimes do, was uh, kind of watching what the brother was doing and went and told the Buddha, hey, my brother is... <laughs> and the, the Buddha, my brother is doing this. And so the Buddha went to um, this monk and he said, ah, uh, you were a musician before, right? And the monk goes, yes, yes, uh, blessed one. And he says, and, and when you had, when you played your lute, how did you tune it? And there's some conversation about, well, you know, when the strings are too loose, then it's flat and you can't really play it. And when the strings are too tight, you can't really play it, it's out, of, it's out of tune. And they snap. And the Buddha said something to the effect like, verily, this is the case here. There's a certain kind of way of making effort that's right in the middle, that's appropriate to the circumstances. Appropriate to the circumstances. So, Sometimes we need to bring up effort and energy. Sometimes we actually need to soften how we're making effort. Sometimes we can completely let go of any effort, at least for a period of time. And there are occasions where we can make every kind of effort we can think of and still not be able to control what's going on or have it happen the way we want to or think it should, which is a lesson of not-self and dukkha in and of itself. Sometimes you just got to go take a nap. Okay. But if virya is there, you're taking the nap because it's skillful means. That you know for yourself, okay, I've gotten my mind so tied up in a knot now that I don't know how to undo it. I just got to go lay, <laughs> lay down for a while. It can be skillful, right? But you're doing it for the right reason, with intention. That could be good practice. So that points to that discernment points to the role of wisdom, 
the last of the five, five spiritual faculties in how we actually practice. That it's not uh, just a punch list. Right? You have to take feedback in real time about the effects of making effort in a certain kind of way. Which brings me to the role of sati or mindfulness in this process. <clears throat> so how would one know the effects in real time of how you're making effort? Well, you'd have to be present and attentive in a receptive, interested allowing way to actually perceive what happens when you try in one way and then you try in another. So mindfulness allows us to see that, to see what happens. And of course, this uh, quality of mindfulness is very, very important in Buddhism. So it's actually... I would say one of the hallmarks of the whole system, the way this particular quality is elevated. So, you know, it's often said that, uh, it was said in the suttas that mindfulness is like a guard at the, the gate of a city. You know, he's, he's just like sitting there in his, his watchtower and watching the traffic flow in and out of awareness, coming in and out of the city. Um, he lets in uh, what is skillful and chooses not to encourage what is not skillful to enter. So there's this whole protective quality uh, to sati. And when it's present, sometimes we're actually able to do things like head off the mind going into distraction. Because in real time we start to notice that boredom has arisen or that we're starting to tip or that energy has gotten low or that a desire has arisen for some other object. But instead of operationalizing that or just letting that happen, we use mindfulness and a capacity to focus attention to actually maybe double down on contact with the chosen object, to, du- to redirect attention back to the anapana spot before uh, the barbarian hordes break into the sanctuary and you know we go for this long, unpleasant war uh, with what's happening. So sati can help tell us that can inform us about what the current experience is, the dimensions of that. And this quality of sati or mindfulness also has a balancing kind of effect among the other four spiritual faculties. So if you notice where it is in the list of the five, it's right in the middle. So you have two, two energizing ones on the left. You have faith, with, which is energizing, and then you have effort, with, which is energizing. Then you have sati, or mindfulness. 
and then you have concentration, and then you have wisdom. So the understanding in Buddhist practice is you can never have too much mindfulness. Mindfulness is always a a good, it's always a wholesome quality of mind. Um, So it notices when the other five spiritual faculties start to come out of balance and in the noticing helps to adjust how attention is deployed. So for instance, if there's too much energy relative to to concentration, the mind can actually get agitated. And some of you have noticed that, you know, feeling restless or feeling like, you know, you're kind of like bouncing off the walls. The mind is having a hard time settling, settling on the, on the breath. There isn't, you know, enough relaxation and calm within the system. Too much energy relative to concentration and the calm that it brings. So sati or mindfulness would notice that, which would be an indication to maybe, for instance, walk off some of that energy with fast walking outside. Right? Or maybe uh, temporarily open up the, the field of perception a little bit wider so the energy can, can, can kind of move in, in the body and uh, you know, letting go for a few minutes of the effort to actually hold the attention really close and tight at the anapana spot. So sati can see that. Sati can also see if faith is uh, operating in such a way that the mind is in the, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, and has forgotten the task of actually attending at the anapana spot. too carried away with its enthusiasm to actually settle down and do the practice as the instructions are given. So let's go on to the quality of concentration itself, which is a main thing that we're cultivating here on retreat. And Marcia gave quite a comprehensive uh, talk last night that touched on a lot of different dimensions of this uh, and associated topics. But concentration, to stand with composure, unification of mind, samadhi, non-distractedness, non-agitation, stability of mind. So this particular quality of mind is a mind that is settled. The energies are present. They've been, they've been gathered together. They can... Um, be used to attend to what one wishes to attend to, this gathered mind that's steady. 
it can be turned to what we wish. Now with concentration, there are wise and unwise versions of this. I said sati or mindfulness is always wholesome, right? It's intrinsic in mindfulness. That it's devoid of greed, hatred, and delusion. But concentration can be unwise concentration. And it probably doesn't take too long for us to think of examples of what might be unwise concentration. You might be um, very good at certain activities that are unwholesome, but when you do them, your mind is very settled and absorbed and the energies are very gathered in the doing of those very things. So an example that's sometimes used to uh, describe or illustrate unwise concentration is uh, a cat burglar. You know, somebody that would be capable of, you know, getting on the the roof of the Louvre and, you know, dropping down through a skylight and evading the internal de- detection systems and finding the paintings that were wanted and taking them out of there uh, without detection and getting away. Well, I would say the people that would do such a thing probably have a well-developed capacity for a certain kind of concentration, right? Your mind would have to be steady. You'd have to really right, be right there with it without uh, having a, a lot of uh, distractions in your mind. But it wouldn't be wise concentration because it's got uh, greed in it. So this is a pointing to the role of sila or ethical behavior Uh, the precepts and how important they are in the cultivation of wise concentration. So another importance of sila in the cultivation of wise concentration is that, that living with basic morality in our actions of body, speech, and mind leads to non remorse, non regret, non remorse. So the the mind isn't stirred up. There isn't a lot of turmoil about memories of things that we've done that we now regret, which can come up on retreat. These kinds of things can come up for any of us. But if if um, you know sila has been weak or absent for long periods of time, you can get a big flood of this kind of stuff. And when you're being flooded with this kind of stuff, your chances of finding the anapana spot (laughs) are slim, right? So there's this whole purification uh, process that one needs to go through um, to kind of clean up the mess um, and then probably a whole process of recommitting to sila and Uh, doing mindfulness practice and learning to encounter and work skillfully with the energies that come up related to uh, these kinds of memories and this kind of remorse. So sila is important. Now, to talk about some of the imbalances of, of concentration, 
one of them is if there isn't enough energy related to concentration, then you can have this phenomenon that probably just about everybody here has experienced at some point thus far, which is this phenomenon called sinking mind, right? So you probably have also had the experience of like, God, I'm just so sleepy, I can't keep my eyes open. It's like, ah, go to the breath, go to the breath, right? Bob, I'm out of the breath. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I'm I'm gonna stand up. I'm gonna exercise virya, I'm gonna exercise effort, I'm gonna stand up. Well, you know, people have been known to fall over (laughs) standing up too. I've been known to fall over on benches. I was once once in this hall on retreat and there's a man on a bench and he must have fallen asleep because all of a sudden he just like fell over com- sideways completely. Boom! He hit the floor with a big no- noise and then he popped right back up and got on the bench. <laughs> it's like, so quick. It's like, wow. <laughs> So, but, you know, rather than uh, taking that method to wake yourself up again, <laughs> when, the mi- when mindfulness strengthens, when it becomes stronger, you start to, to learn uh, earlier on in the process when you're starting to tip in that kind of direction and then you can actually get in there and employ some remedies to try to counteract the effects of sleepiness. And there's, there's a state uh, related to sleepiness, or it's kind of along the same spectrum, called sinking mind. Uh, so I talked about that with some of you this morning, this state of sinking mind, where you're not asleep exactly. There's, there's some awareness there, but the, the state of awareness, it's like kind of heavy, but it's kind of pleasant. It's pleasant and it's heavy, but there's awareness there, but not much. <laughs> but there's that kind of like that feeling like you're underwater, you know, it's like you're a little bit underwater. It's like you're trying to break for the surface. <laughs> you get a couple strokes in there, you know, you can see the light and then you start to float and down you go again, <laughs> right? So sinking mind is really common in concentration practice. So that that's an imbalance with with energy. So you can heighten that either by the direct generation of energy and which can be done in a number of ways, but one of them is you can call upon uh mindfulness and actually require the body mind system to notice more. It's like give it more of a job to do. So for instance, if you're, you've just been kind of floating at the Anapana spot, knowing something is going on there, but you keep going into sinking mind, you could ask the mind to do some more work there at the Anapana spot. Say, okay, I want you to notice the beginning of the in-breath and the end of the in-breath. The beginning of the out-breath, the end of the out-breath. So in order to do that, you'd have to bring up some energy to make that kind of effort to see if you can perceive with that increased clarity. Uh, so that would be more noticings per moment. 
So you would be uh, asking the mind to see if it can perceive more than it has been perceiving. And sometimes it can respond and sometimes it can go, no way, and then get agitated and then go to sleep. (laughs) What you see for yourself. So this concentration uh, helps to overcome distractedness and restlessness and worry. Because once concentration starts to open, then you start to have the experiences of calm and tranquility and settledness. The mind starts to get content with the object of meditation. It starts to actually like being at the anapana spot, feeling the breath. So maybe you've had a few moments of this where the mind is like kind of happy to be there, happy to be at the anapana spot, just having this experience of the breath happening on its own and the mind being right there with it without too too much uh, happening that's competitive with that. So one of the secrets of concentration practice is persistence with it. At first it's the mind uh, directing attention towards this particular experience at the anapana spot, making effort to find it, to hold the awareness there at that spot, dealing with all the challenges, you know, the sinking mind, the restless mind, the wanting mind, the not wanting mind, the doubting mind, figuring out how to work with those hindrances. But at a certain point, it can be as if you cross over the breakwater and now you're out in the ocean. Now the mind is, or the attention, the mindful uh, attention is at the anapana spot and it's actually getting kind of pleasant. Oh, so it becomes, instead of the mind having to find the object and hold awareness to the object, it's almost like the breath and the sensations of the breath start to magnetize awareness to it. The breath starts to have this kind of magnetic and almost alluring kind of quality to it. So the workload goes down at that point. Right? The hindrances uh, to concentration start to subside and it's easier to actually be, be continuous. And the mind starts to like it. So you know, part of this is having the patience and the persistence, the faith, the effort, the mindfulness, the paramis, to continue to do this until the body-mind system starts to figure out how to make this link with the sensations of the breath in a sustained kind of way. And when it learns how to find the pathway and make the link in a sustained kind of way, it's almost as if the breath start, the sensations of the breath start to do the work. And the awareness is just there with it. But this is a process, right? So you can see all the other wholesome qualities of mind that are called upon and are actually ripened as part of developing some capability to do this, right? Because 
you think about what's involved. There has to be persistence there and resolve. There has to be faith. There has to be some equanimity. Uh, when it's not going well, there needs to be some compassion for yourself when it's not going well. There has to be some wisdom when it's challenging. So all of these other aspects of our being are called upon uh, as part of this process as the resources that allow us to find success in doing this. So there's a whole parallel process that's going on in the development of concentration or any other kind of bhavana that is also developing these many other wholesome, important aspects of the heart-mind. So there's a certain way in which this is an upstream kind of process that actually is strengthening to us. But it it means you, that the front-end qualities that I talked about earlier, the first of the, the five spiritual faculties, the faith and the effort, really need to be in, engaged and deployed because it is an upstream process. So we're we're practicing near the the limit of the the load that our system can her, currently handle our body mind system can currently handle right so we're gradually pushing a little bit further not in an aggressive kind of way but we're using that virya that quality of mind to yeah, let me let me give it a little nudge okay yeah no that's too much well maybe if i just do this. Oh, yeah, okay. I can keep coming back even though I feel a little bit sleepy. I can stand up even though I've got sinking mind. Yeah, I'll, I'll employ a remedy. But you see the importance of resolve and some of those other wholesome factors. So you know one of the the first things that you did that powered your practice when you got here was the surrender of your cell phones. As scary as that was to many of you, that was really uh, an important act of renunciation and uh, faith and commitment to this process. Because I can guarantee you, if you were hopping on and off of those while you're here, whatever degree of um, agitation and success <laughs> uh, you've had would be quite different and not an improvement. So, so good on you. Parami ripening. All right, so let's talk about... Um, Wisdom, the last of these qualities. So you could say um, a definition of wisdom is non-delusion. Wisdom is a mind that sees things as they are. 
So it overcomes delusion, which is the primary problem in the way the Buddha describes things. He says the primary problem for human beings in terms of why we suffer, why we experience discretionary human suffering, is the kind of delusion which is born from ignorance. Ignorance being... (coughs) a kind of active ignorance where it's it's not just that we don't know stuff. It's that our understanding of how things are and how things work is actively wrong. So he's saying, you got the wrong model of how things are. Very deeply embedded in this whole process of bhavana, this practice of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is actually designed to slip under that inaccurate model we have of reality and bring us into direct contact with things as they actually are in the interest of revising our understanding of what's actually happening, which allows us to come into harmony with reality rather than engage in a futile kind of uh, struggle to make it other than how it must be in any given moment. So wisdom is uh, what liberates the mind, ultimately. Wisdom liberates the mind. Concentration provides uh, power to the mind clarity to the mind that allows it to more easily notice accurately and closely reality moment to moment. So one of the other things that that I've noticed about uh, concentration is that it raises your IQ about 20 points. Not that I've measured it, but, you know, I've noticed for myself that when the mind is very concentrated, when the mind is clear, when the hindrances are at bay, when there aren't, the mind is unified, there aren't cross-currents going on, various random thoughts streaking through and distracting emotions happening. There's just, like, clarity, stillness, uh, a kind of radiance of mind. You, you can do some good thinking there. Right? It, the mind is just clear, it's just settled. It's not casting about with half-generated thoughts that then do U-turns, that turn into non-sequiturs, that, right? There's a kind of coherence Um, that can come out of the mind when it's really clear like that, when it's settled, when it's concentrated. The mind becomes more powerful in a lot of different ways. So, you know, the Buddha's understanding is that liberation isn't actually in the objects of awareness, it's self. 
So our liberation isn't actually found in the sensations of the breath itself or in the concentration that's developed even from attending to the breath as a, an object. But it's in understanding the implication of how the objects exist and how they are. So the Buddha says, wisdom is insight into the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. It's seeing the three characteristics of all conditioned experience, meaning seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, how they, they arise because of multiple causes and conditions, and when those change, the experience changes, it disintegrates or it transforms into something else. Everything uh, is uh, impermanent and thus unstable. Seeing the um, unsatisfactoriness of that from the perspective of a human being that wants to have a fixity to things, wants to get things to be the way we want them to be and keep them that way. You can see the implication of uh, Anicca is you can't get it to be the way you want it to be and keep it that way except get it get better and better. That's what we would really like, right? Think about everything that you want in every dimension of existence and have it be the way you want it to be only to improve in the future. We would like that, right? To keep the ones we love, to not have to deal with the ones we don't like, to never get old, you know, to lose 30 pounds and eat what you want. I mean, we all have a, you know, to have a world that's at, at, that's at peace, um, you know, to punish certain politicians. You know, it's like we all have a list. We all have a list of things that we would like to be able to do and see happen. We have some influence and control, but it's limited. Wisdom helps us to understand where and how we actually have influence and control and where we don't, which is a huge huge thing because it means that we then we can channel our energies and our efforts in a way that's actually useful and productive we're not tilting at windmills we're not you know throwing our our body in front of the tank thinking that the tank is going to hurt so this wisdom quality is is really important and the third aspect of, you know, the three characteristics is, is the Buddha's uh, unique teaching, unique among the spiritual um, major religions, his teaching of not-self. How he, he clearly says, well, you know, anything that's, that's conditioned, that's impermanent, that's unstable, you really shouldn't think about that as being a self or belonging to a self or being a, a self. He says that's not like a good way to think about anything that's impermanent. And yet, everything that we can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, think, is conditioned and impermanent. He's saying, don't pick it up with a big eye or a big self in the center of it. 
Don't think it all refers back to you. Let it have its own nature. Let it, let it arise and pass away. Let it take its own course, its own path. So this is hard to grasp on a hearing level, literal level, but you can come to understand this teaching and how liberating it is through practice. Through practice, through experiential learning and knowing. And having a mind that's composed and concentrated is one of the ways that allows us to really closely observe in real time these experiences, ever-changing experiences of, of body and mind and do what I talked about back at the beginning of the talk when I was talking about faith. And the faith that was necessary, the faith that was necessary to undertake a serious investigation of the truth claims of the Buddha. So you can see how this all ties back around. So that's probably about enough for tonight. There's a lot in that. So just to close these five spiritual faculties, you already have them. You already have them, you're using them, you're deploying them in this process. And in the process of doing that, you're both strengthening them and you're learning how they, uh, how they support and uh, how one, one leads to another and how that uh, process of one leading to another, that chain of causation, eventually opens up concentration and wisdom. And you're learning experientially how to recognize and deal with Im- imbalances in some of them by deploying their opposite. So this is all part of your, your real-time experience here all coming about through learning to figure out how to to find the breath at the Anapana spot. <laughs> it's pretty wild, isn't it? It's like how it starts with just this base of simple physical sensation attended to with a certain pitch of attention that we call mindfulness and how um, uh, the framework of the teachings um, really opens up a whole new gestalt, a whole new understanding of what's going on, which is onward leading, which is the, the promise of the Buddhist teachings. And the Buddha said uh, many times, Eke paso, come and see, come and see the teachings for yourself. So you don't have to uh, rely on what I say to you, you can check it out for yourself which is uh, the most valid kind of um, way of finding out what is actually true and useful for you. So let's just sit for a minute or so and let it die down.
May we arouse the faith necessary to undertake the journey to find out for ourselves what is so for our own benefit and for the benefit we may be in the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.